All right, guys. Well, glad to be back with you back again in the building here. So, you know, a couple weeks ago, we had last week, obviously, taken a break to go into an Easter message. Uh, but two weeks ago, we were in Genesis chapter 29. So we're going we're gonna to kind of pick it up from there. But we'll start by kind of reminding you kind of where we left off. Um, if you remember, the Lord had opened Leah's womb. At that time, Jacob was deceived. Remember, Leah was kind of slid in there, and she became his first wife. And then he worked seven years for her when she took that place. And then, uh, But the wife that he really wanted to marry was the younger sister, which was Rachel. And he ended up having her as his wife, too. And they ended up working another seven years. So he worked 14 years to get the two women to be his wife. But if you remember when that happened, uh, there was controversy because, of course, his heart belonged to Rachel. That was the woman that he loved, was Rachel. Uh, Leah, he you know, didn't have that connection with. That was not the woman that he wanted to marry. But the Lord had opened up Leah's womb, and she bore him four sons right away, which, remember, in that culture, that was huge. Uh, number one, to have children, but especially sons. And she was given the four children, which was Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. And you just talk about how important that was, you know, to think of the 12 tribes and Levi and Judah, especially that she was the mother of them. Now, Rachel, at the same time, even though everybody knew that Jacob loved her more, and that was the one that he cared for, the Lord actually did not open her heart, so she remained barren at the time. She was not able to have children. Unfortunately to Leah, though, you know, the children didn't have the effect upon Jacob that she thought they were going to have, that she had hoped for. Because despite having those four sons, his affections for her never really quite reached that same level that he had so naturally for Rachel. He loved her so easily and Leah, every time she had a child, she would name the child based off of this one for sure will gain his affection. You know, she was like, for sure this son is going to make him love me. And after four children, she still did not get that affection, that love that she wanted so back. So she wasn't really willing to admit defeat yet, though. She was still trying. And in chapter 30, we're going to see a vivid example of just how ugly things can get whenever we try to force something to happen instead of just allowing the Lord to unfold his own plan for our lives, both in his ways and in his timing. You know, it's, we, we have to learn from these lessons in Scripture when we see this. Because when we start kicking down doors, trying to make something happen that God is not doing, you're going to find yourself in a mess. You're going to find yourself in a mess real quick. And this is going to be a vivid example of that. So in Genesis chapter 30, verse 1, it says, when Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she envied her sister. Give me sons or I will die, she said to Jacob. And Jacob became angry with Rachel and said, Am I in God's place who has withheld offspring from you? So right away, Rachel now is getting to the point, after she had seen Leah, which was basically her competition now, after she had seen her older sister bear four sons in a row, she was losing her mind. She was becoming desperate, and she was becoming irrational in the way that she was thinking. She tells him, give me sons or I will die. Well, clearly it was not his fault that this was happening. It was not something going on in this, but she felt like he was withholding something from her, and she still wanted something desperately. She needed a child for herself. As if, you know, Jacob had the power to make that happen, and that, you know, the other fault that she had was she felt like her great disappointment in this one area of her life was going to kill her. 
It was that big of a deal to her. You know, we got to be careful to kind of keep our hearts in check on things that we want really badly. When it becomes that consuming to us that if we don't get that one thing in our life that it's, it's not even worth living, we're, we're in the wrong frame of mind. We're not thinking clearly at all. Something is wrong. You know, if, if God withholds something from our life that we want so desperately and we feel like it's going to kill me if I don't get this thing, something is wrong with the way that you're, you're thinking of that situation. This is also an example of really what uncontrolled envy can do to a person. Okay, let me define envy to you. It's a feeling of discontented or resentful longing aroused by someone else's possessions, qualities, or circumstances in life. So when you think about somebody who has envy, it's more than just wanting something so badly for yourself. It's coupled with that feeling of bitter resentment of somebody else who does have what you want. You, you resent them. You are bitter towards them. It makes you angry when you see them. They have that house that you wanted. They have that job or that promotion or they have that car. Or they have the money or the looks or whatever it is. And you want it so bad for yourself. Do you remember like when you were in high school or junior high and you wanted to be noticed by that gal or that, you know, that guy and you so desperately wanted their attention and somebody else got that attention and how much you wanted that for yourself, but it made you bitter and resent to the person who was getting it because they did get it. That's what envy does. It's absolutely corrosive and it's more than corrosive. It's a sin. Envy is a sin. Okay. And I want to clarify something too. There's a difference between envy and jealousy. Envy is when you are envious of another person. Again, you want something that they have and you're bitter, you're irritated that they have it. There's resentment in your heart towards someone else who has something that you want. That's envy. Jealousy is you have something and you don't want somebody to take it from you. That is jealousy. Okay. So don't confuse the two of what they are. This is envy that's going on right now. But remember, envy is a sin, and that's why the Bible has such strong warnings about the sin of envy. I just pulled up a couple different references here. In Proverbs chapter 14, 30, it says, A sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. Isn't that true? Like, if you have peace in your heart, if you have a sound heart, it adds life to you. But if you are consumed by envy, it is rottenness. You are decaying from the inside. The core of you, who you are, is decaying. The second one is James chapter 3, verse 16. It says, for, when en- for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. So that's certainly true of what we're reading about today. You know, Rachel and Leah were each consumed by envy over each other. But they were envious for different reasons. Rachel was envious of the children that God had given to Leah. So God, she knew that God had opened up Leah's womb, and she was envious that her sister had children, and she did not. Leah was envious of the love that Jacob had given to Rachel. She wanted the love and affection that Jacob had for her sister, which she did not have. And because of them, neither one of them had joy. 
They were bitter. They were constantly, you know, just scheming to see what they could do to fix the situation. And their life was miserable because of this. And you need to learn that lesson. Be warned about this. If you allow envy to consume you, you will not have joy. I promise you. It will consume you. It will be rottenness to your bones and to your spirit. It is a terrible thing to reside when you've got envy controlling you. And just like James says right there, Envy will cause confusion and every other evil thing to be present within you. All your thoughts, I mean, you think about, you know, again, you read of these things where somebody gets jealous of someone else and they end up, you know, plotting for murder and hiring somebody to kill them and all this. It's like, and then you look at their life and you're like, she was just a housewife. How did that like you know, just snowball out of control. How did that spiral out of control that she would hire a hitman to kill, to kill this woman? And it's because that's the thing. When you get consumed by envy, it opens up so much evil within your heart. Your thoughts are completely irrational in your heart. It's just out of control. You have to keep that thing in check. So as we see here, now because of this envy that they have for one another, the baby wars begin. And this is ridiculous. When we read this, it's like, could this really have happened? I mean, how could they get so off base on this? Verse 3, it says, Then she said, Here's my maid, Bilhah. Go sleep with her, and she'll bear you children for me, so that through her, I too can build a family. So remember, that was Rachel. She's like, Give me a child or I die. Here's my maid. Sleep with her. And then she can have a child for me, and at least I'll have a child through her. So Rachel, verse 4, gave her slave Bilhah to Jacob as a wife, and he slept with her. Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Rachel said, God has vindicated me. Yes, he has heard me and given me a son. So she named him Dan. Rachel's slave Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Rachel said, in my wrestlings with God, I have wrestled with my sister in one. And she named him Natalie. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her slave, slave Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's slave Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, what good fortune? And she named him Gad. When, when Leah's slave Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, Leah said, I am happy that the women call me happy. So she named him Asher. Can, can you believe that the women at this point were so consumed with this competition of having more children that they were willing to enlist other women into this so that they could count the children? Here's my maid. Here's my maid. Here's this guy with four different women now that he's sleeping with. They're all having children and they're doing it to get even with each other. There's somewhere of this completely spun out of control. I can't even imagine this. And the guy's like, okay. <laughs> you know, he's not even thinking about it. You know, it's like, by this point, I imagine he's like, this has got to stop. Okay, because it's getting out of control at this moment. Verse 13, notice what she said though. Leah said, I am happy that the women call me happy. That really stood out to me. She was happy that the women call her happy. Was Leah happy? Not at all. She was consumed by bitterness and envy, and she was just, she was having a terrible time with this whole deal. She was heartbroken that her husband didn't love her. She couldn't earn his love no matter what she did. She was not happy, but you know what she was happy about? That other women looked at her life and assumed she was happy. She was happy with that. 
Much like people today, maybe we assume that they are happy with their life too. Maybe they've got more money than us, or they've got, like I said, more possessions, the nicer house, car, spouse, whatever it is. And we look at their life and we go, oh, they must be so happy. And they walk around and they look like they're happy. Every place they go, they've got the shine to them, you know, and they're just like, oh, it's just the perfect family. They're so happy, right? We judge people just like that, too. We look at this, you know, these other women were looking at Leah. It's like, she's had all of these sons. She's got everything she needs. She must be so happy. And Leah's like, I'm so happy that they think I'm happy, but I'm not. I'm not happy at all. Inside, I'm miserable. Inside, I'm dying because the thing that I want most, I don't have. I want Jacob to love me. And no matter what I do, Jacob will not love me. It's possible to have, quote unquote, to have it all and still be completely unsatisfied and totally empty. You know, you may work your entire life trying to get to a certain point where you think, when I get to this level, I'll have the money that I want and then everything will be good. And I'll tell you what, it doesn't matter what you do, Money does not satisfy. You will always feel like it's not enough. I speak from experience. I've got to live through this twice now, but I'm in a much better position spiritually than I was the first time going through this. Money is great. I'm not opposed to money. It's not that money is evil. Money is just the root of all kinds of evil. There's evil that can be birthed in your heart and in your attitude when you get consumed by chasing after riches. And here's one thing that I've learned over and over and over again. No matter how big the bonuses or how big the raises or how big you know that check is every week, it never satisfies you. It just adds to a larger vacuum that wants more and more and more. And it doesn't matter how much you make. You always feel like it's never quite enough. Listen, if you cannot learn to be content with the bit that you have right now, you will not be content with the more that you have later. It's just the way it is. You better learn to be content with your circumstances right now. Uh, I've shared this story a number of times, you know, and, and I believe that it's something that bears worth repeating. But when I quit Discount Tire years ago and uh, I went into ministry and my pay was drastically reduced, um, there was no bonuses coming in anymore. And my, save, my retirement was all kind of going away because we were using that to live off of. And, you know, I was in a much different financial situation than I was a year before that time. And I remember, again, at Christmas time, and I was the one, I was the pastor who was in charge of a lot of administrative things, and one of the elders came into my office, and I was cutting checks because we would, we would get paid once a month. That was hard to get used to, too. Get one paycheck and just live on it for the rest of the month. You became a pretty good budgeter. Well, actually, we never really became very good budgeters, but we've survived. Okay, But we went, and I remember when the elder came in the office, and he goes, hey, Clint, he goes, this month, it was December, and I remember thinking, I don't know how we're going to buy stuff for Christmas for, for our kids. Because, I mean, we did not have the money. You know, it was pretty thin by that time. And I remember him saying, you know, hey, I want you to print out two checks for each pastor. Double it. And, it, and I, in my life, I had received much bigger bonuses than that. Trust me. Okay? But I never appreciated a bonus as much as I appreciated that extra check. I had to go through some things in my life to get to the place where I really understood the value of something. And part of it was getting out of this place where, where I just had experienced so much and had taken so many things for granted. 
you can, on the outside, appear to have everything. And people may look at your life and they may say, oh, I would, if I was in his situation or her situation, if I married a person like that, or if I had a house like that or a job like that or whatever it is, I would be so happy. And they may be sitting there smiling on the outside, but when they go home alone, they're empty and miserable because it doesn't satisfy. That's why Paul wrote, you know, I have learned to be content in all things. Contentment is not something that comes easily. I, I, I admire people that are content with a little bit of things. When I, when I went to the Philippines, and again, we were there the first day. Um, we had taken a group of kids to the Philippines, and we were getting ready to put on a VBS for them. And there was a bunch of the kids in the neighborhood, and word spreads very, very quickly when Americans come into town because they know they bring gifts and they bring stuff. And these kids literally were living in shacks. Well, we had, we had printed up something like 300 shirts that we took with us. And we were handing them out to these kids and inviting them. Well, they never got new shirts. This was Imagine if you had never had a brand new T-shirt. And somebody gave you a brand new T-shirt and the smell of it and just knowing it wasn't handed down by, you know, friend after friend or, you know, older brother or whatever. It was like yours and it was new. So we had hundreds of kids showing up wanting to go to our VBS, right? Because they were so excited about what were these Americans going to bring to them, right? My kids, after about the third day, literally the 10 kids that were with me, uh, Sandy, you saw her on uh, the Zoom when we were doing the Zoom. She was one of those kids that was part of the leadership team at that time. And um, within about Wednesday, we got there on Monday. By Wednesday, literally, my kids were weeping. My 10 kids that came with me, they were, they were so convicted because these little kids had nothing. And they were sitting out there and they drew these little squares and they were playing like this hopscotch game. I don't even know what it was, but it was with rocks and sticks and dirt. And they played it for hours. They took, they took rubber bands and they made a jump rope out of it. And they played for hours doing these things. They didn't have anything else, but you know what? They were having so much fun and I didn't have to say anything. The Holy Spirit started grabbing the hearts of my kids and they were just broken because they're like, we are so spoiled and we don't appreciate anything. We don't appreciate anything. And it was a real reality check for them because when they saw when everything was taken away, these kids were so content with a new shirt. They were so excited. Yesterday, I had the privilege of doing uh, Mary's uh, memorial service, Mary Austin, who used to be part of our fellowship. And, uh, and I was just sharing that with, uh, with the people there because it's one of my fondest memories of Mary. Mary would sit right there. She'd sit in that chair. She would have her, you know, she, she would sing on the worship team when she was able to do it. Um, and she was like a little kid when somebody gave her a new hat a new scarf or new shoes. I heard about those stinking shoes and those scarves. And she's like, look at my new shoes. I'm like, you think she was six. She was so happy. It just, she loved it. And then I, we, we got to hear the stories of her growing up and that's just the type of person she was. She took such great joy and so many of the little things that we take for granted. And now when I see a picture of her with that, with that hat on, I just, it makes me laugh, you know, because she just loved it so much. And she'd go to Goodwill and pick out another little hat. And she just loved it. She was so satisfied with those things. I'll tell you what, there's nobody richer in life than a person who can be satisfied with little things. There's nobody who's richer. 
You know, they don't have to have a ton of money. They're just grateful for what they have. Man, that's, that's the richest place to be in life. And then if the Lord so chooses to add to your riches, or if he gives you something more, then those things are appreciated. And you just sit there and you say, thank you, Lord. Thank you so much for what you've given me. Because you had, you had a good expectation. Your, your thinking was correct. I think we're all jacked up when it comes to that. We're all messed up. Because we've all had so much for so long that what do we really appreciate? What do we really appreciate? What are we really grateful for? Sometimes we have to have things taken away before we really appreciate the things that are truly important. Sometimes that's what has to happen to get a reset. Verse 14 kind of continues in this madness. It says, Reuben went out during the wheat harvest and found some mandrakes in the field. When he brought them to his mother Leah, Rachel asked, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. <coughs> Excuse me. But Leah, Leah replied to her, Isn't it enough that you have taken my husband? Now you also want to take my son's mandrakes? Well then, Rachel said, He can sleep with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came in from the field that evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come with me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So Jacob slept with her that night. God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore a son, bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my slave to my husband, and she named him Issachar. Then Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. God has given me a good gift, Leah said. This time my husband will honor me because I have bore six sons to him, and she named him Zebulun. Later, Leah bore a daughter and named her Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son, and she said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, May the Lord add another son to me. So verse 14, we see this woman really even resorted to more of superstitious practices in order to get pregnant. Apparently, it was widely reported at that time that these fruits, they called them love apples. This is what it really comes down to, these mandrakes. They were a special fruit, and they believed that if you ate enough of these mandrakes, that it would increase your fertility. So the son goes out, you know, Reuben, Leah's son goes out, and he picks this fruit, and uh, she, <laughs> Rachel's like, hey, give me some of those mandrakes. I'm the one who's barren. And she's like, no, you've already taken my husband. Why am I going to give you my fruit too? You know, and they get into this whole thing, and she's like, okay, I'll make you a deal. Give me some fruit. You can sleep with my husband. She's like, deal. And then they show up to Jacob. He comes in from work and all. He's like, I'm so tired. She's like, no, come here, stud. You're sleeping with me tonight. And then she gets pregnant again. <laughs> This guy's getting tossed around like a rag doll. I mean, honestly, it's like the, the Bible is, is crazy when it comes to some of these things. So she goes and they both end up getting pregnant after this. Verse 22 makes it clear, though, that it wasn't those love apples that worked, but rather it was God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and he opened her womb. Don't miss those details when you read the Bible. See, because the, just because something is accurately recorded in Scripture doesn't mean that it's true, if you understand what I'm saying here. They had superstitious beliefs that these things would happen. But God makes it very clear that God heard Rachel, He listened to her, and He opened her womb. It wasn't the fruit. Ultimately, 
You know, God can do things. I mean, we have like fertility drugs and things like that in this day and age, and I'm not going to take a stand either way on if that's bad or not. But there's something that you need to understand. Even if you resort to some of those things, the only way that a person is going to become pregnant is if God allows that. Okay, because there's plenty of people who try and try and try and pay plenty of money and it never happens. And then some people have 10 kids all at once. I mean, it's just you know, like you go either way. Okay, but it's the Lord who opens up the womb for that. You know, barrenness for the woman who wants children can be one of the toughest tests of her faith in God. I've seen it. I've witnessed it. I've seen the heartbreak of couples firsthand that have struggled with infertility. I think of a couple back in Arizona that just, they wanted kids so badly. And they did. They prayed and prayed and prayed. And as a church, we prayed and prayed and prayed. And they never had children. And then, you know, a couple years down the road, they'd done the fertility treatments. They'd done all these things and still had no kids. And and then uh, they started adopting children and they adopted three little kids uh, that were coming from a, a, drug, a, a drug user's home. It was a really bad situation and they took these three little kids and they raised them as their own. And then one day she got pregnant and she had her own child and they weren't even trying at that point. It, it wasn't something they just figured they were never going to have children and then God gave them their own child. And I just remember the surprise and joy of wow, now after all of this that we've done, I look at it and I say, God withheld that from them because he really wanted them to take care of those three children. They really needed to be in a home really badly. And it gave them a chance at life. It gave them a chance for an opportunity for a better life. And through their heartbreak and their sorrow, when that had happened to them, God was actually doing something that was good for them because they loved those children. They loved those children as their own, even to this day. But they didn't understand why God was withholding something that they wanted so badly. And then it's like after they obeyed and they settled in and they just said, okay, Lord, if this is what it is, this is what it is. We're going to go ahead and just adopt these kids and we're going to take care of them. Then the Lord gave them that additional blessing. And I just remember again, the joy and seeing the things. It's like, wow, who would have thought? God thought. He was using that. I've seen how people come through on the other side of that when they do get pregnant and the extreme joy and blessings that they have. After so many years of just heartbreak, and I'm telling you, it really is, it's heartbreaking for some women. And it's it, because they feel like they're less than a woman in, in so many ways. I've just seen it happen so many times. And it's, it's you know, especially back in this culture, it was really bad. It was considered a curse. If you didn't have a child, you were cursed by God. That, that's what the, the common teaching was. So it was doubly bad for them. But man, when, when that time comes, and if God does allow somebody to have a child, man, for somebody who comes out of that situation, that, just like I talked about the bonuses and stuff, there's very little things that equate to it as far as bringing joy into a person's life. When that day finally comes, there is joy. Man, there is joy. So finally, in verse 25, we kind of get past their baby wars to Jacob kind of acquiring his own wealth and his own independence from Laban. I think this is an important part, point of Jacob's life because remember, Jacob had always been kind of like a mama's boy up to this point. You know, he was taken care of by his mom, you know, and she was, he was her favorite and everything else. 
And then you had Esau that was the hunter guy and he was kind of dad's favorite and he was, he was the guy to go out and get food and stuff. And Jacob had always kind of been taken care of his whole life. Then on this trip, he kind of goes out on his own. First time he's outside of his house, outside of that comfort zone. And he's kind of running into what real life is. And what's one of the first lessons he gets? He becomes basically a slave for 14 years because he didn't have any money to pay for his wives, couldn't pay for the dowry. So for 14 years, he works as a slave to this man Laban. I think God was teaching him that that's part of the responsibility of a man is to work, you know, is, is to do what you can do. You know, and, and I'm not saying that, you know, if you don't have a job, you're not a man. What I'm saying, though, is God has put it in our heart to work and earn. And, and to do what we can to provide for our family. And here was Jacob where everything, remember, by the time he left, he was in his 50s. So he'd been taken care of by his mom all those years. And then he finally left. And now he's finally got like a job and he's working and he's being, you know, he's kind of being treated like a slave and being taken advantage of even in many respects. It was a hard, hard time for him during these 14 years. But now in verse 25, something changes in his mind. It says, after Rachel gave birth to Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me on my way so that I can return to my homeland. Give me my wives and my children that I have worked for and let me go. You know how hard I've worked for you. But Laban said to him, I have, if I have found favor with you, stay. I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Then Laban said, name your wages and I will pay them. Something changed in Jacob's life at that moment where he was like, it's time for me to take care of my family. It's time, this is my responsibility. I don't want free, you know, free board. I don't want free food. I don't want to just be working for you and I have a place to live and you take care of my family. Give me my wives. Give me my children. And it's time for me to raise and take care of my family. It's time for me to do it. All this time, Jacob had kept his promises to Laban, but now it was time for him to look out for his own family. He had to make that decision. It's time for me to do this, to embrace this responsibility. Knowing, knowing that Jacob was entitled to this, Laban tries to find another way to coerce him into staying. He understood the reason why he had been blessed so much financially was directly tied to Jacob, which is interesting because we know that the Bible eventually says that all who bless Israel will be blessed and all who curse Israel will be cursed. Well, Jacob is Israel. He becomes Israel. And it's interesting because he's in this situation and he's working and Laban's being blessed. Like he's becoming the richest guy in town through the work of Jacob. But Jacob is not reaping any of that benefit himself. He just has a place to eat and a place to sleep. And he's got his kids and his wife. That's all he's got. And he's like, it's time for me now to go and take care of my family. It's time for me to do this. So in a moment of weakness, because... You know, it says that, that Laban received some sort of divination where it came and, and made it clear that it was happening because that, I don't know what happened. I, I don't know if his spirit showed up and spoke something to him. We know that he was an, he was an idol worshiper. We know that. 
So maybe there was some spirit. What, we know that when you worship an idol and if there's any kind of spiritual thing that's happening, the Bible says it's demonic. There are demonic spirits that are, that are masquerading as, you know, something from the Lord. So you got to be careful with that when you're messing around with like Ouija boards and stuff like that. Is there a spiritual thing that happens? Yes, there is. The problem is you're tapping into something demonic. We live in a world where there are spirits. We live in the world where there are spirits that have access to us and you're tapping into that. So you got to be very careful. So it, some sort of spirit, which I assume was demonic, says, hey, don't let him go. He's actually the reason you're making money. His God is blessing him. you got to keep this guy. So he tells him, <coughs> name your wage. I'll pay whatever you want. A guy like Laban never says something like that. He, he, Jacob was that important to his wealth. So Jacob comes up with this risky, risky plan in verse 29. So Jacob said to him, you know how I have served you and how your herds have fared with me. For you had very little before I came, but now your wealth has increased. The Lord has blessed you because of me. And now when... I'm sorry. And now when will I also do something for my own family? See, he's like, it's time for me to step up for my own family. When am I supposed to do this? Laban asked, what should I give you? And Jacob said, you don't need to give me anything. If you do this one thing for me, I will continue to shepherd and keep your flock. Let me go through all of your sheep today and remove every sheep that is speckled or spotted, every dark-colored sheep among the lambs, and the spotted and speckled among the female goats. Such will be my wages. In the future, when you come to check on my wages, my honesty will testify for me. If I have any female goats that are not speckled or spotted, or any lambs that are not black, they will be considered stolen. Good, said Laban. Let it be as you have said. So his plan was this. Back then, if there was any sheep or goat that had speckles or spot on them, they were not as valuable. They were, not, they were considered blemished, okay? And you definitely didn't want a black lamb, like the black sheep of the family. That came from there, right? That was somebody that you didn't, you didn't want that. That was considered something that's lesser of quality or cursed. So he says, I'll tell you what. You let me go through all of your herd, which I am the one who's responsible for you having so much of this herd. I have, you know, I've been taking care of them. I've been making sure that they're producing all those things. And let me just take the blemished lambs and the goats. And let me just start my own herd with just that stuff. Just the stuff you don't even care about. You keep the best. Give me the leftovers. That will be my wages. And now I can start taking care of my own family. And I will still stay and take care of your herds on top of that. I'll tend to my herds. I'll tend to your herds. We'll keep them separate. If you ever show up and I have a lamb that is not speckled or spotted or black, you will know I have stolen from you. Because every one of them that are born that comes out that way, they go right to your herd and I only take the defects. That's all I'll have. Layman signs. Good plan. Sounds awesome. Look what he did right after that in verse 35. That day, Laban removed the streaked and spotted male goats and all the speckled and spotted female goats, every one that had any white on it and every dark colored one among the lambs, and he placed his sons in charge of them. He put a three-day journey between himself and Jacob Jacob, meanwhile, was shepherding the rest of Laban's flock. So he says, that's a great plan. You go and pick all those out. And what does he do? 
As soon as they finish the conversation, Laban and his sons go and pick out all of those spotted and blemished lambs and goats, and they take them away from Jacob, three days journey away from him, and he gave them to his own sons instead of Jacob. Once again, he lied. Isn't that interesting? Because Jacob had started this whole thing as being a deceiver. And now twice he has been deceived by Laban. Jacob's grown up a little bit, though. (laughs) Look at how he responds. He didn't throw a fit. He didn't give up. He didn't roll around like a toddler having a tantrum. You cheated me again! He didn't do that. He handled it so differently. Instead, he went to work is what he did. He still took care of Laban's sheep. Why did he do that? Because that was the promise he made. It didn't matter that Laban had broken his promise. The promise that he made was that he was going to take care of those sheep. And the deal was, any of the sheep that that are spotted or, again, blemished, those become my sheep. Basically, Laban did this to him. He says, okay, cool, but you're starting with nothing. You have no blemish sheep. You have nothing to start with. And Jacob still kept his word. He still did his job. That's admirable. I admire a man or a woman who will do that. That even though they were cheated, even though they were treated wrongly, they still had so much integrity that they did the right thing. There's not many people like that left in this world, are there? No, no, no. Oh, you cheated me. I'm going to sue you and I'm going to get rich. You're going to pay for more than my sheep. (laughs) You know, I'm going to own the whole farm. You know, that's the thinking. If you wrong me, I'm getting even. You owe me something, right? Jacob, and that's how he used to be. But at this point, after 14 plus years of serving like a slave, something changed inside of him. I call that maturity, spiritual maturity. There comes a point in our life where we have to embrace situations that we're in, even if we feel like it's unfair. Even if we feel like someone has cheated us or they have wronged us, there comes a point in our life where we say, God, you are still on the throne. You are still in control. And if this thing is happening, and even if it's wrong, because I know this is wrong, he promised me these sheep and he gave them to his sons. And now I got nothing once again. There comes a point where you put your head down and you go to work. And you trust the Lord to take care of those things. You do the things that you can do, but you do not spend the rest of your life fighting against the things that that went wrong. We've all done it. We're all guilty of it. Expending a lot of energy for things that we feel we're justified in fighting against because we were legitimately wrong. But let me ask you this question. How do you feel? How do you feel? Are you worn out? Are you stressed out? You feel like you're going to have a heart attack because you're, so, you're trying so hard to, de- to defend your rights. There is a time to fight. 
But there is a time when the Lord says, stop fighting, trust me. I am still on the throne, I am still in charge, and I am well aware of what Laban did. I am well aware of it. Trust me. And then in that situation, we do the things that we can do, and we do them as well as we can. That's what we do. Verse 37. Jacob took branches of fresh poplar, almond, and plain wood and peeled the bark, exposing the white stripes in the branches. He set the peeled branches in the troughs in front of the sheep, in the water channels where the sheep came to drink and the sheep bred where they came to drink. <coughs> the flocks bred in front of the branches and bore streaked, speckled, and spotted young. Jacob separated the lambs and made the flocks face the streaked sheep and the completely dark sheep in Laban's flocks. Then he set his own stock apart and didn't put them with Laban's sheep. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob placed the branches in the troughs in full view of the flocks, and they would breed in front of the branches. As for the weaklings of the flocks, he did not put out the branches. So it turned out that the weak sheep belonged to Laban and the stronger ones to Jacob. And the man became very rich. He had many flocks, female and male slaves, camels and donkeys. Now, I'm not sure to what extent his whole plan with these reeds and sticks and, you know, put them in front of the sheep and they'll mate in front of it and then they'll have these spotted things. I don't know to what extent that played into what actually took place. Maybe it was experience after 14 years of tending to Laban's thing. He found something that actually worked this way. It's completely possible. I don't know. I'm not a sheep herder. I don't know if this is true or not. But here's what I do know. God caused this to happen. So here he was, Laban betrayed him again, took all of the spotted and all of the spackled sheep and gave them to his sons. Jacob put his head down, put his nose down, went to work, did his job, was taking care of Laban's sheep. And then he started doing these things, putting these branches in the troughs. And all of a sudden the sheep are mating like crazy. And what is coming out of these sheep? Speckled and spotted sheep, black lambs, all of them. Laban thought, cool, I'll start him with nothing. It'll take him years to build up a herd like this. And all the sheep that were coming out were speckled and spotted in black. And during that, Jacob became very rich because now he had a multitude of animals. There's something we can learn from that. See, if Jacob had just said, I'm done, I'm out of here. You know, you lied, deals off, I'm taking my wives, we're going, right? He could have done that. Instead, he bit his tongue. He did his job. And who rewarded him? God. Do you think he would have been better rewarded with Laban? Or with God? Absolutely, right? Exceedingly abundantly above anything we could ever ask or think. And that's, that's counterintuitive to what we think. We think that if somebody wrongs us, we got to make it right. And if we make it right, it's going to be better for us. 
We get what we're owed. Sometimes God's still small voice says, let me fight for you. Let me take care of this situation. Again, how do you discern that? Well, you get in your word, you pray, you follow the leading of the spirit. You'll know, listen, when you're trying to get even with someone, you'll know it as a believer because there will be such conviction and guilt that's in your heart. You'll know that you're handling it wrong. You'll know it because you're breaking God's heart. You can sense it. There's this internal thing inside of us that we just know that this is not what God wants. And then you back off and everybody's like, oh, but that person's going to get away with murder and you're letting them do it. And how could you do this? And everybody else and you're just like, I, I know it's crazy. I just feel like I need to back off. Let God take care of this. And then somewhere along the way, the Lord starts making things right. Did that happen immediately? No. It took a long time to build that herd. It took probably many years. But eventually, Jacob learned a very valuable lesson about trusting the Lord. I think we rip ourselves off way too often. We fix our own problems way too often. <clears throat> and we walk out of it thinking, cool, I handled that. That'll teach them. Where if we had just waited like the Spirit was trying to tell us to do, we would have seen the Lord come through in such an amazing way that it would have, number one, exceeded what we could have gotten done. But more importantly, we would have learned to trust the Lord even more. We would have learned. We would have known it was God who did it. And it would have been greater than anything we had received because we learned to trust the Lord. We're just not good at it. We want to fix things ourselves. We want to take care of it right then and there. Man, how many times have we ripped ourselves off by fighting for our own herds? Today, I just want, I just want you guys to ponder that. Jacob, in a sense, had to be broken down before God built him back up. He was a spoiled brat, mama's boy, living at home. And he acted that way. And then everything fell apart because of the way he was conniving and deceiving. And he had to leave home. It forced him out of that situation. He basically left home broke. He had all the promises, but he was broke. He had nothing materially. He ended up being a slave for like 14 years and deceived and taken advantage of. Can you imagine his pride? How that was broken <clears throat> during those 14 years. On top of that, he had four women that he was trying to take care of. This man was being punished. Okay? <laughs> they were fighting and bickering and using him like a rag doll to be a baby factory. You know? Sounds cool at first, but I'll tell you what, I guarantee you this guy's life was miserable. And then he got deceived again. But the second time, he handled it right. He handled it right. Have you ever been, have you ever experienced anything like this in life, guys? Have you ever been dealt such a poor hand in life or maybe you have been cheated by someone else only later to experience God's blessing 
because of that situation. That situation you could have never envisioned would ever be a good thing for you. And then later on in life, you look back and you go, look at what God did through this. Look at how he changed my life. Look at how he did this in my life. This would have never happened the way that it did had that person not cheated me or treated me so terribly. God seems to work that way. And I'm not saying it's all the time, but I've noticed it a lot in my life. I've experienced this. Where he places us sometimes in harsh circumstances where we may like feel like we're not getting a good deal at the moment. It's not working out so well, God. But then as we faithfully serve him in that circumstance, he blesses us in ways that we never expected. That's why I want you to focus on this last verse, Colossians 3, 23 through 25. It says, and whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you receive your reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he, but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Now, it's easy to say this sitting in a church right now. It's hard to do it when the rubber meets the road. I have found this to be true in my life. I've experienced this. It's not just something I'm teaching you. I've experienced these things. When I, when I came into Oregon, and some of you guys know, you know, as my journey with Discount Tire, but when I, when I came into Oregon, because I was not able to give them the, the assurance that I would not quit again, um, I was told that I probably would never be a manager again because I could not give them the assurance that I would never quit again. I never got angry with them about it. I never whined about it. I never complained about it. I just did my job. Somewhere along the way, through circumstances where a vice president left that I really feel like I would have never been promoted under, and another one took that place, something changed. I didn't cause that to happen. I just did my job. That's all I was doing is just doing my job. As a matter of fact, I was tending the lambs of another, of another owner in every circumstance where he was getting rich and I was doing the work. You guys know this. I know what it feels like. But I just kept on doing my job to the best of my ability while I was not reaping the benefits. And then one day, the situation changed. At that moment, I thought, man, God, why did this take so long? The first time I got promoted, it was like seven years from scratch. This one took almost 10, and I was sitting there thinking, why did it take so long, God? You know, I left on good terms. I should have been easily promoted again. But I started as a tech and had to work my way back up. I basically was a slave. I was an old, fat slave that had to learn everything again. It was terrible. And it was humiliating all along the way. But I had to be broken down. And I had to swallow my pride because I had a family that I had to take care of. And that's just what I had to do. So I did it. 
I get promoted, they put me in a store that everybody ends up with, and I'm just grateful to be a manager, and then events happen beyond my control, thought I'd be there forever and get an opportunity to be in the store that I'm in now. And I'm like, okay, cool. I almost didn't take it. Took that store, I'm like, okay, cool. And then another situation occurred that I had no control over whatsoever. And it radically changed my business. And all of a sudden, financially, my situation is completely different. And as I was thinking about these things with Jacob this morning, I'm like, I have experienced this. Not just that time, but, but all I did was put my head down and do my job. And then one day, the circumstance changes. And, and I step back and I go, that wasn't the vice president who made that decision. That was God. And I just had to trust God. And all I had to do was be faithful and just do my job. And that was it. I'd like to tell you it always works out that way, but there's been times in my life where it hasn't been that, that obvious that God is doing something. There's been times in my life where I've just put my head down and done hard work, and it's just been hard work. And it just didn't work out the way that I thought I would. But I have learned that God is doing something even in the hard work. If he's not allowing me to achieve the end that I desire, then he's achieving something in me. He's doing something in me. He's changing me from the little spoiled brat Jacob to the Jacob that can now be wronged and take it and put his head down and do his work and eventually be blessed. Because whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Listen, if you can learn to live your life that way, whether it's at your work or it's in church or whatever it is, just do your best in whatever circumstance you're in and realize I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing this for Jesus. If you can learn to live that way, it will be God that gives you the reward. Now, it's either going to be in this life or it will be in eternity, but there is a reward that he gives for faithfulness. I've learned it in business and I've learned it in ministry. You know what success is to me nowadays? I'll tell you what God is like reduced. He's broken me like a piñata over the years. You know what success is now? Faithfulness. Just be faithful. That's success. And if you can be faithful, you leave the reward up to God. Just do your job. We need to remind ourselves every once in a while where we're in a difficult circumstance. I'm not doing this for Laban. I'm doing this for Jesus. That's the reminder right there. I'm not doing this for Laban. I'm doing this for Jesus. And you go to work every day with that attitude. You go home every night with that attitude. You go to church every week with that attitude. You go and help those people that don't seem to appreciate it, whatever it is, and whatever area of your life, you have that attitude and you say, I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it for Jesus. Then he's the one who gives the reward. Do it heartily though. Notice that. 
do it heartily for the Lord. Not half-heartedly. Do it heartily, and He will reward you. He's the one who does it. If ever we needed people like that in our society, today is the day. Not people just doing things for their own benefit, but doing things for others. And most importantly, doing things for the Lord. Trusting Him to be the rewarder of their work. That's where we all got to get. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you for this example that you've given us in Jacob's life. And he went through something that was so hard and difficult, I'm sure. But he learned, he grew, he matured, and he got to see that even though he was wronged, you still made things right. You made it better than right. You made it righter and rightest. You so hooked him up and took care of it, Lord, that Laban must have just been scratching his head thinking, how does he do this? But you taught him such a lesson that he can trust you no matter what the situation is. That you always have his best interests at heart and it doesn't matter who is trying to cheat him. Lord, would you help us to remember that? Would you help us, Lord, to hold on to that promise? Would you remind us of these things, Lord, when we are struggling, when we are being wronged? Help us to trust you above even the person who's treating us like an enemy. Please, Lord, help us to turn our attention towards you. I pray that you help us and remind us of these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.